0: From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCauer this week in Davos, Switzerland. On this week's edition, some conversations from the World Economic Summit, Starbucks goes positively positive, the growing risks of global risks, and why textile metrics are in fashion. It's a clothes call. This week on
1: 350.
0: It's January 24th. Twenty twenty. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz three fifty. Heather Clancy is on a much needed vacation. So joining me from the home office in Oakland, California is Green Biz Vice President and Executive Director of Verge, Shauna Rappaport. Hey Shauna. Hi, Joel. How is it going back in California?
2: It's going great over here. We're uh, we're we're keeping things under control while you're over there getting up to mischief at Davos. How's it going?
0: <laughs> well, I can't speak for the conference, the actual summit because I'm uh, not credentialed to go there, uh, only uh, relatively, you know, elite of elite get to go there, but there's a quite a constellation uh, ecosystem or whatever, a long list of other events going on around town. Um, And that's where I've been spending my time. I'm sitting right now. You'll hear a lot of noise during this week's edition. I'm sitting actually in the lobby of the Hilton, which is right across from the Congress Center where the uh, dignitaries and elite are meeting. Um, But um, it's also kind of great people watching. uh, Perch There's all sorts of folks from the corporate and political world and a few others. Uh, familiar faces uh, wandering by. So that's where I am. And that's the venue from which I'm podcasting this week.
2: What what kind of meetings and events have you been been participating in? I understand you hosted. Did you host a dinner last night? What, What have you been up
0: to over there? So there's uh, so many events and so many going on simultaneously. Uh, I'm going to events on, uh, uh, sort of focusing in a lot on on the topics that I'm particularly interested in these days, and that includes circular economy, that includes uh, ESG and what we at GreenBiz call greenfin. Um, and uh, said a lot about metrics themselves and, of course, business and nature, uh, biodiversity and how that relates to climate change. Those are three th- themes that I'm seeing a lot of different events going on. Uh, yes, I did host an event uh, on a Tuesday night uh, here in Davos. It was uh, the World Business Council for Sustainable Developments uh, Circular Economy Dinner I uh, had a couple of panels and uh, a number of speakers and uh, just a great group. But were, what was interesting, Sean, is that they were from four I think five different continents of speakers. And so we got a perspective from South America, from India, from Europe, obviously the States and, and so on. And, and, and that's something we don't always get to hear, how circular economy is, is being implemented and what it means in some of those uh, cu- uh, countries and cultures.
2: Mm. Well, all of those themes, obviously, we've been tracking them closely. But I'm so excited to hear more, and I'm sure you'll be covering uh, what you're learning about and, and engaged in over there. So can't re- wait to read more once once you uh, get through the week.
0: Yeah. Well, the plan is to have a piece for my regular Monday column. So uh, now that I've said that, I have to do it. But so look <laughs> for that. <laughs> um, so yeah. So that'll be interesting. And um, over the course of this episode we're going to be playing uh, about five interviews I've done actually four of them uh, here in Davos one of them about a report that comes out in the run up to Davos the global risks report talked to one of the authors of that and um, so that'll be the, the bulk of this uh, episode but for now actually Shana let's talk about the week in review Piece this week, Shauna, that was really provocative about the tech reckoning, really challenging the tech community in ways that I think is, 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 is needed. Talk a little bit about what you talked about. Yeah, well,
2: actually, my piece for my my call, my weekly column, my Verge weekly newsletter, which you're, if you're not signed up for it, you ought to. Uh, my piece this week, I actually really focused on the the positive news coming out specifically with Starbucks and Microsoft's re- recent announcements, which was a I'm sure we'll get into both of those. A nice counterpoint to my piece last week, which was a bit of a. Um, I wouldn't say a shaming, but a a, a holding up a mirror to the tech industry in particular, which I've certainly been thinking about a lot. We're still in January, like getting going, uh, heading towards uh, Verge 20 this year, and just thinking a lot about our move back to the Silicon Valley and the role, the responsibility, the opportunity for the tech sector in particular, and the whole region for that matter, to really, really step up on climate. I think there's been an increasing number, certainly, of, of thoughtful pieces and and buzz, certainly in the Bay Area and, and, and globally as well, um, about just the ways in which the industry, that region, California more broadly, which is in so many ways the epicenter of innovation, has really not been stepping up to bring the, the prowess of innovation and ingenuity and financial resource to arguably address one of the, if not the greatest uh, uh, existential threat uh, facing humanity and all life on Earth. So it's a topic that I've been thinking about a lot um, and and certainly plan on on. on on um, covering more and, and designing our program this year and the events leading up to it uh, at Verge 20 to really look at how can we support the industry and the region in, in helping to address one of the, the biggest issues of our time.
0: So it's a, it's a little surprising to hear you say that because we write all the time. In fact, you acknowledge that in your piece, Google and Apple, Microsoft, Adobe, that some of the big tech companies really are showing the way on renewable energy procurement, recycled uh, renewable materials. In the case of Apple, uh, Microsoft, as you said, just uh, made a really bold and ambitious uh Uh, aspiration uh, your goal to be uh basically a a carbon positive company um and so how does that square with what you're writing
2: well that's where that's where the 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 Announcements from both Microsoft and and Starbucks, which by the way came after I wrote my piece last week, are a perfect example and why I seized the opportunity to write about it this week. I think you know one thing I've been thinking a lot about is sort of m- moving beyond sustainability towards more of a regeneration uh, mindset. That's something that's been really uh, uh, important to me. I was very involved in drawdown since inception, and from a pure project drawdown that is. And and if you look at the science, what what's 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 really clear is that given legacy emissions, which, by the way, is part of what's so exciting about Microsoft's announcement and commitment to address their legacy emissions, even if we were to stop all carbon emissions today, we still have 100 years of lag time. So we've got basically about a trillion excess tons of CO2 emissions that we need to, in effect, draw down from the atmosphere. All of this indeed laudable work from the Googles and Apples and and, and and Adobes of the world to in effect reduce, minimize or even eliminate their negative footprint, I would say is is not enough. And it's not just what I would say. It was what it's what science tells us is needed if we're to actually going to avert the worst of climate change. And so that's why the announcements this week, um, again, from from Microsoft and Starbucks are so exciting because this move towards um, towards resource positivity, the move towards drawing down and giving back more than companies actually take is is really where I think we need to be headed uh, in the world of sustainable and truly regenerative business.
0: So let's talk about Starbucks. Uh, The Starbucks uh, announcement this week is uh, that they're committing, uh, making a series of commitments uh, to become, as they call it, resource positive on carbon, water and waste. Um, And while they don't always have targets, uh, ultimately they're setting some some interim goals, but they're looking at uh, more expanding their plant-based options, getting rid of single-use reusable packaging. Uh, They're investing in regenerative uh, agricultural practices and reforestation, uh, water conservation, uh, water replenishment in their supply chain, investing in in better ways to manage waste, um, ensuring more reuse and recycling. And innovate to develop more eco-friendly stores, operations, manufacturing, and delivery. I guess that's the catch-all for (laughs) anything they forgot. How do you read this, Sean? On the one hand, they've got these big, bold uh, commitments or aspirations. On the other hand, they're not really saying exactly what they're going to do when.
2: Yeah. You know, honestly, I feel mixed about it it's on the one hand, a huge, huge step in the right direction, committing to resource positivity. They're saying that basically they're going to store more carbon. Starbucks is going to store more carbon than it emits, eliminate waste in effect completely and provide more fresh water than it extracts. I mean, to the point that I was just making about actually giving back more than we extract, than companies extract, that's, Huge. That's a big friggin' deal. Um, so obviously, even just the the boldness and the leadership, the ambition to put yourself out there to make those statements is 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 significant. I think when you get into the weeds, and um, Elsa did a great job covering the announcement, you can see. Okay, so by 2030, they're basically planning on slashing carbon waste and um, and water. I believe I believe it is, which is is progress. Doesn't actually say whether those are science based targets, but um, the five categories that you just named around, you know, their menu, reusable packaging, all that, it's all, it's all great. Um, It's not Necessarily net positive doesn't align with those uh, actually restoring and regenerating the the natural systems. So um, I think it's like many bold sustainability goals. It's going to be a matter of seeing what they learn along the way, and 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 for those of us watching, hoping that they can keep up the ambition.
0: We absolutely will be watching, and, and and I do think that there is uh, something to be said. Apple has done this as well, where they set a goal um, but without a specific target and, and a goal that frankly, they don't necessarily know how they're going to meet. And, and I think, think that's, that's bold. Um, and obviously they have to deliver. And, and I think the fact that they made this so public as, as they did, uh, says to the world, well, you know, we're going to do this now. So <laughs> we have to do this because someone is going to be holding us accountable. So yeah, I agree that it, it is a little bit mixed, but in general, uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited and, uh, and happy that they're doing this. And I think this is, we're going to be seeing more and more of these uh, positive, regenerative kinds of commitments. I was talking with someone uh, here in Davos about regenerative is the new sustainability. Uh, we'll see, but this is a start. So let's move over to another story. This is something that, uh, Kind of uh, kind of in your, in your wheelhouse, uh, Sally, you from uh, the CEO of Forum for the Future in the UK, uh, wrote a piece and timed it to Davos uh, about why exploring multiple futures is vital in our response to the climate crisis. Uh, they would spent a lot of time at the Forum for the Future looking at scenarios and, and, and future casting and how do you plan and to help companies do that sort of thing as well. Uh, but, Shana, this is something that you think a lot about around systems, thinking, transformation. Uh, what do you make of this?
2: Well, I think the framing in in Sally's piece is actually, is actually really nice. And it, it speaks to something that I'm seeing a lot and experiencing personally, witnessing in my community as well, which is um, – there's a lot of disillusionment right now. I mean, she mentions at the opening of her piece how, you know, usually we start the new year or a new decade feeling hopeful. There's a lot of reasons right now to not be feeling particularly hopeful or optimistic about the future. And, you know, there's there's a actually a really cool uh, a phenomenon in social psychology called the availability heuristic, which basically describes the extent to which we are more likely to create outcomes that we have or a possible future that we have examples for. And so the work that they're doing at Forum for the Future, of basically bringing diverse groups of people together, giving them uh, tools for imagining many different possible futures, I think is capacity building around a really important skill that we need right now. We have a lot of examples, a lot of stories, a lot of data points that are supporting the future that we don't right want right now, um, a rather dystopian future. And so giving people in these kinds of contexts, again, the tools to imagine different outcomes, um, feels really important uh, in terms of engendering in, in and emboldening ourselves to, to go out and create them.
0: Do you see that this sort of way of, 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 of systems transformation futures thinking is actually being used inside companies or is it more of a think tank variety?
2: It's a really good question. I can't speak to whether there's, an, you know, there's strong initiative and impulse from companies internally. I know organizations like Forum for the Future, Institute for the Future, that are really deeply rooted in these kinds of scenario planning and and many others, for that matter, often are brought in. I think it would be great to see an increasing uh, number of those cases. You know, there are some really compelling stories of the ways in which doing this kind of work leads to significant transformation. I think it's in, in Sally's piece she shares a story about the, the tea industry and how they brought together, you know, folks from across the supply chain and 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 engaged in this kind of, of of scenario planning or future imagining possible futures. And it was only when they came to the point of grappling with wow, as a result of climate change, as a result of resource scarcity, there is a possible future in the near term future in which tea no longer exists, um, that was what was really needed, getting to that rock bottom point of grappling with that to then move forward together and imagining a possible future. So when we think about what that might look like, I mean, talking about Starbucks, I think it's 60, 70% of all coffee varietals are extremely at risk due to climate change. Think about other industries. You were gonna. I know we're going to talk about your great textiles piece in a minute, thinking about cottons and other materials. I imagine these kinds of futures um, scenario plans is could be a really powerful way of helping the whole system grapple both with the, the not positive future that we're trying to avert as well as uh, being more becoming more rooted in in what's possible.
0: yeah that's a good point and and, and I've been hearing and having a number of com- conversations here in Davos um, where uh, you know a lot of the conversation uh, on the part of companies, um, and I had this conversation with a chemical company that's big in plastics, and, and it was at the event of the Alliance to End Plastic Waste, which is a uh, has just had its one-year anniversary, this uh, alliance of, of plastics and brands and, and chemical companies that are trying to reduce uh, the waste piece on plastics. They're all operating uh, as if the future will be an extension of the past – that tomorrow isn't going to look that different from today or yesterday, except in some incremental ways, and things will continue to, to emerge and grow and get better. But it, disruptively, it's not going to be that. It's just, and, and I think that's a hugely—it's uh, a huge blind spot and a hugely missed opportunity um, where there just not looking at this disruptive light, as the tea industry did as you were just talking about Shauna. they're not looking at you know just what happens when when f- the public doesn't want fossil fuel production anymore or it needs to ramp down and what happens to their supplies of, of petrochemicals that come from fossil fuels i mean there's just so many different scenarios their their social license to operate they're just assuming that the things are going to continue to grow uh, the way they have in plastic bottle use, and they have to do something about that, and they and they're and they're working on it, but they're not. They're, I don't see them looking at a disruptive future. And I know you know well, uh, the future is being disrupt- disrupted as we speak.
2: Indeed, and powerfully said. Thanks, Joel. So let's shift to talk about the piece that you ran on Monday—a very exciting announcement about how the Textile Exchange is creating a new index to make a material difference. Ha <laughs> ha! Um, awesome story, and it, very exciting that GreenBiz is serving as the leading, uh, sort of the lead media partner for the launch of this index. Talk a little bit about what the index is, who's involved, and, and sort of what's what struck you most in in digging into this initiative.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, I've been watching the textile exchange. It used to be called the organic exchange. And then before that, it was, I think, the organic cotton exchange. It's evolved in a, in a couple of different ways over the past almost 20 years of its existence. But uh, they've been doing a, a lot of work to to help uh, understand and, and, and grow the markets for initially sustainable cotton or, or, or organic cotton, actually. But now it's sustainable materials of, of a, a wide range of, of types. And um, they've had this, um, they do this benchmarking exercise every year or every couple of years, I'm not sure exactly the frequency, where uh, they participating companies, a couple hundred of them submit information about their purchases and, and a number of other practices and policies, and they benchmark it and anonymize it and, and report back to the industry how everybody's doing. And, and then for the industry themselves, they actually do a, a leaderboard where you can see who's the top five buyers of, of say, organic Cotton, and and so now they're ramping it up and and creating a set of, of, of metrics that are, are more robust. So this is a reboot of, of, of that whole thing, and and so um, it, it, it's really an opportunity, uh, and, and a really a great opportunity of how one industry is taking it upon itself. It's it, it's not even through a trade association. It's a it's a it's a not not for profit uh, group that's coming together as a, a collaborative effort. And and looking at uh, you know how do you buy and and make sure that you're getting the right whether it's a viscose or, or any any number of synthetic materials down uh, as in feathery type of down and and they put out a whole series which we're publishing a whole series of articles I think ten of them on different materials so the piece that I wrote which sort of introduces this whole thing and talks a, there's a little bit of context a little bit of history which is. Always, what I try to do, and, and talk to uh, one company, CNA, that uh, Jeff Hogue, who's the chief of sustainability there, and how they're using this kind of index to uh, both internally, uh, to and, and within their supply chains. Um, but I just think this—it's called the Materials Change Index—is as is a really important, potentially powerful tool. Uh, For the textile apparel and actually home furnishings industry as well, but a great example of what happens when uh, companies come together uh, on a voluntary basis and create not just a low bar standard, which is what you see in a number of industries, but actually a high bar. They actually create the ultimate standard of, of what it takes to make that particular material sustainable And, uh, I, I just, I'm in awe of, of all the work that's gone into this by this great team. And then there's a piece in addition to the one that I wrote, there's a piece, uh, by, uh, Liesl Truscott, who is their, uh, European director and, uh, material strategy at the textile exchange. And and she wrote uh, a little bit more inside baseball of how they're doing, why they're doing what they're doing and, uh, and, and sort of looking at this and it's a number of series of pieces that we're going to be running all week and uh next week on this as well a series of, of, of 10 different things so I, I, I encourage you to read it if you uh, have textiles in your supply chain and a surprising number of sectors do not just apparel and footwear and as i said home furnishings this is a, a terrific tool to use that i think uh, can help you get further faster on your materials choices Each year in the run-up to the Davos Summit, the World Economic Forum releases its Global Risks Report. The report presents the results of the latest global risk perception survey in which nearly a thousand decision makers from the public sector, private sector, academia, and civil society assess the risks facing the world. Here to talk about this year's report is Robert Bailey, Director, Climate Resilience at Marsh McLennan Insights, which helps produce the report for the World Economic Forum. Hi, Rob, and welcome to Green Biz 350.
3: Hi, Joe. Great to be here.
0: So give us a little bit of the the highlights from the 2020 report. What's changed from the past?
3: I think the the main highlight for 2020 is the dominance of environmental risks in the outcomes of the risk perception survey. So we're seeing that in terms of risk likelihood, all of the top five uh, risks are environmental risks. And in terms of impact, three out of the top five risks that have been identified are environmental risks. And this is really um, the continuation of a trend that we've been seeing uh, over the last four or five years, really, the increasing prominence of environmental risks in, in, in the survey. But it, it's really got to the point this year where you know, they're trumping everything else.
0: So we're talking about things like extreme weather events, the failure of climate change mitigation and adaptation, natural disasters, uh, biodiversity loss, and ecosystem collapse, which is seems like an interesting one. We don't hear as much about that. As you said, th- those were also at the top last year. Are they getting even more and more critical? Is that what the research has found?
3: Yes, I think that's right. So, um, as I said, it, it, in terms of likelihood, this is the first time that we've actually seen all of the uh, top five risks being environmental risks, and I think it's really a, a symptom of the fact that you know the world is moving from a you know and an, a growing awareness and discomfort, if you like, about climate change and biodiversity loss, onto you know something of a of a, an emergency footing if you like so it's really symptomatic of the fact that you know if you look at the news in on on any given day you're going to see a report of an extreme weather event a climatic event um growing political uh, concerns about climate change we're seeing climate change feature more and more in uh, in general elections around the world. We've seen it feature in the UK election, Swiss election, the Canadian election, the Australian election, European Parliament elections this year. We're seeing growing uh, action around climate change with Extinction Rebellion and, and, and the school children's protests. We're even seeing some, you know, nascent forms, if you like, of industrial action linked to climate change with with, with staff from uh, a number of global tech companies actually um walking out uh, as part of the climate change protests from work or or, um, openly criticizing management or even initiating um, shareholder actions in some cases. So, you know, we really are, uh, I think, um, seeing a a sort of a step change in the level of, of anxiety and concern about these issues now.
0: It's interesting, because when one reads the news, you you certainly see those things, particularly what's going on in Australia right now, for example. But you also see a lot more about economic inequality. Um, You see a lot about uh, in the business press about asset bubbles, and and, and even particularly a carbon bubble, or housing prices, and and a lot of uh, other critical issues. And yet those don't seem to uh, rise to the level of concern that uh, environmental issues do despite the fact that arguably, at least certainly in the United States and and, and other countries, they don't get as much media as some of these other issues. Why do you think those are are looming so large in, in the minds of the influencers that you survey?
3: Well, I think if you look back over the last 10 years, it's certainly the case that economic risks did feature very prominently, particularly after, you know, in the wake of the, of the of the global financial crisis. The risk perception survey. Then you know, it's green today in in terms of the color coding, which is green for environmental risks. But back then, uh, everything was blue for economic risks, and you know, there were concerns about asset price collapses, um, fiscal risks, all sorts of things that, that you know that are that it's more linked to that economic and. Um, and uh financial agenda um but i think you, you know today um i think the science is, has, has reached a point now where it's pretty incontrovertible that really uh we have run out of road if you like for uh, in terms of the the opportunity to uh avoid the worst impacts of um, of climate change you know the science is pretty clear that uh we really have to see a step change in the level of ambition and policy making if we're going to avoid the most serious impacts of climate change and that has percolated if you like not at, not just into the media but it's also got the attention of uh you know financial regulators um being, you know here in the UK where i am the bank of england uh, has uh, announced plans to stress test banks and insurers for for climate risks and 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 so the the you know the whole agenda seems to have percolated much more deeply uh, into the you know the different institutions which are selling policies and regulations as well as just the public consciousness i think
0: so how is this global risk report used, um, or at least how would you like it to be used, and by whom? What's its uh, purpose?
3: Uh, Well, a lot of our clients use the report really as a a basis for their own risk management and horizon scanning functions. And I think, you know, with that that in mind, I think one of the key messages that that comes out of the analysis this year is around the risk that's been identified about the, the possible failure of climate change mitigation and adaptation. And if we just take, which has been identified, I think, as the, the second most likely risk to occur and the most impactful risk that could happen. And if, if, if we look at this, if we take each of these in turn, for example, the, you know, the, the, the failure of mitigation, we're at a point now Where global commitments to uh, reduce emissions put us on course for something like three degrees of warming by the end of the century. We know that to get to 1.5 degrees of warming by the end of the century, the level of ambition in government policy making needs to increase fivefold. And yet, we've just come out of a UN uh, negotiation in Madrid last month where it was a very frustrating and disappointing outcome. There wasn't really any strong signal that there were plans to increase the ambition of of climate policies in, in the immediate term. And so we've got this situation now where it's something like a kind of a transition risk pressure cooker, if you like. You know, on the one hand, we're, we're running out of road. We, it's become more and more apparent that the that, that, that policies are going to have to become increasingly interventionist and strong. On the other hand, that action isn't transpiring and we're seeing growing concerns in public. And so the risk, I think, of potentially reaching a point where you know, the public clamor for strong action on climate change as we see more and more climate impacts accumulate, that, that could really trigger some quite precipitous responses from governments at some stage in the foreseeable future and those are likely to be quite disorderly uncoordinated uh, suboptimal policy responses which could create very significant transition risks for companies so one of the things that you know i would hope that this report can can help companies do is as an input if you like to uh, climate scenario analysis horizon scanning activities where they look at the range of possible different outcomes of transition pathways and uh, warming pathways and the physical impacts that may follow and think about in a, in a sensible, um, logical way what the implications are for their direct operations, for their business models, for their customers, for their supply chains, so they can start to think about putting in place strategies and responses that aren't necessarily based on uh, an expectation of what will happen, but uh, are resilient to the range of possible futures and uncertainties that climate change is presenting.
0: Well, it's scary stuff, uh, but critically important. So thank you for continuing to push this out every year. Robert Bailey is Director of Climate Resilience at Marshall McLennan Insights, which produced the Global Risk Report. Thanks so much, Rob.
3: Thanks, Dr. Jill.
0: One of the companies here in Davos this week is one you probably haven't heard of and wouldn't necessarily expect to be here, Griffith Foods, a privately held company based in Chicago that sells seasonings, batters, marinades, uh, things like that for some of the world's largest food companies. And here with me is Executive Chairman Brian Griffith. Hey, Brian. Hey, Joel. So why is Griffith Foods at Davos?
4: Well, fundamentally, we believe very much in um, the purpose of what the World Economic Forum is set out to do, which is kind of, you know, business as a force for good. Um, how can we can collectively make a difference together um, in terms of making the world a better place? And so this is one of our kind of uh, first forays um, into the World Economic Forum, but um, we feel it's, it's the right context and the right place to be.
0: So tell me a little bit about your week. Uh, you are speaking, I think, on a couple of panels, and what's going on?
4: Yeah, I've had the opportunity um, and and had some invites, primarily with the World Business Council of Sustainable Development. And it's one of the many kind of um, opportunities that around the World Economic Forum, there's lots of uh, ancillary kind of activities that are are playing out. And they're basing their activities really out of the Sustainable Development Goals uh, tent. Um, and bringing together a variety of different businesses um, around topics that are, are meaningful with that. For ourselves, it's going to be a, um, a discussion on the future of protein, um, as well as um, there's a second panel that I'll be uh, discussing with, which will be on uh, risk management, kind of trust and transparency in the supply chain.
0: So there are lots of forums. The uh, World Business Council for Sustainable Development has its own meetings, and, and, and you've been coming, uh, some, some of ours why this one because this is there's a lot of uh, obviously uh, heads of state and, and ceos but what is it about this that made you come i, I believe for the first time
4: yeah um well i think it is it's the kind of concentration of the leaders that are gathered around um, some of the most important issues that we have in our world today and so fundamentally um, as our organization we've been organizing ourselves really around the principles um, and aligning ourselves to the SDGs. And so we believe we have a role to play in each and different areas of that in terms of our materiality and how it can drive impact. So fundamentally as we harness our capabilities as a recipe developing company with our partners is say how can we actually create accessible, delicious nutrition um, for the base of the pyramid as well as for our core business that we have around the world and um, so we really see this as an opportunity to kind of gather together with uh, these different players it's a diverse ecosystem of players Um, some of the connections are obvious and then some others i think are kind of um, occur over the kind of opportunity to interact with one another
0: a lot of randomness of just bumping into people or just meeting people. Here we're sitting at a little uh, beer garden uh, over a skating rink outside on a beautiful sunny and very cold day here at Davos. And uh, we keep running, uh, I've been running into people all, all, all along the way. So as you take the train back down uh, to uh, wherever you're going next from here, and you think about, you know, wow, that was a successful week, uh, exactly what I wanted to see happen. What happened?
4: What I envision happening, um, because we're at the right of the the beginning of this, is um, to be able to connect with people who want to make a difference and take action. And so, like I said, I think there's going to be some novel configurations and inspirations that will come from uh, the contacts that we make here, um, the conversations, um, but most importantly, about the impact that we're going to drive collectively together. There's a lot of forces in the world that are, are pulling against that in some cases, but the depth of the need and the incredible opportunity we have before us it, it behooves all of us uh, to commit ourselves for action and, and delivering on that so i see both uh, new friends partners and our, our ability to actually drive impact as we go forward brian griffith is executive chairman of griffith foods
0: thanks brian thanks joel Peter Bacher, now the CEO of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. Peter, you ran a piece, uh, wrote a piece that we've run on GreenBiz about the triangle to fix capitalism. Do tell.
5: Yeah, so um, we're in Davos. So, uh, stakeholder capitalism is the major theme here. Edelman Trust Barometer came out yesterday, saying that 56% of respondents say that capitalism is no longer serving them. So it's clear that capitalism, as we know it, is coming to its end. My point is, it's not capitalism that is the problem, it's the way that capitalism directs our decision-making. And I said the fix is actually quite simple. If every company adopts science-based targets on climate change, on biodiversity loss, whatever the topic may be, if subsequently they use the recommendations from the TCFD, the Task Force for Climate-Related Disclosures, to really integrate those issues in their governance, their risk management, their disclosures, And if thirdly, we now make finally a push to standardize the ESG indicators, what companies uh, report, how we can make it materiality-based and comparable. If we get that triangle to work, so we focus on what does science tell us we need to achieve, how do we integrate it into the governance, and which language do we use towards capital markets to talk about our performance, then capitalism will actually direct us to solve all these major issues that were highlighted in the global risk report
0: how concerned are you about this talk about capitalism maybe not being the model for the future is do you think that's a, a, a passing trend or is, is that feel existential
5: no i think i think it's a real call <clears throat> both on companies as well as the the capital market players to listen to the criticism uh, it's true that inequality is one of the major issues in the trust barometer this year. That's pretty much driven by capital markets. It's true that capital markets still do not integrate the externalities, so all these issues, climate, biodiversity, are not part of the valuation and the capital allocation models. And if we do not redirect capitalism, then the world will just say, this thing has lost its license to operate. I am trying to warn there is no alternative model yet. Maybe somebody can dream it up, but it hasn't been there yet. So rather than throwing it away, let's fix it. And the
0: fix, like I said, it's a triangle relatively simple. Two of the things you mentioned, the science-based targets and the task force on climate-related financial disclosures, uh, were brought up by uh, Larry Fink in his letter. How important do you think that is, or how much of an impact do you think his letter this year will really have on moving companies? Well, I think the letter each year is,
5: is highly regarded, well-read, well-published. I think it will have real traction once he makes sure that BlackRock uses it in their own investment decisions. In the past, the criticism has been great letter, but where's to follow up in his, in his own company? I think this year he has said to be much more serious about that. So I think that will give the thing credibility. Uh, I think the, the real driver will be, and, and that's starting here this week as well, If we can get to ESG standardization quickly, so that all companies will use the same language, that when you report or I report, we can compare these things, that will help the Black Rocks of this world to really integrate it. And that's why I say it's a triangle. Fixing one of the three is important, but not gonna fix the system. Fixing all three at the same time, that that will get capitalism on the right track.
0: So finally, (laughs) how are you feeling these days? Are you optimist? Pessimistic, cynical. How do you how are you feeling about just the way things are going from a sustainability perspective?
5: Yeah, I think anyone who is in sustainability is always on the edge of depression because you know how serious things are. You see the Australian bushfires and you see the slow response from governance to these type of topics. But on the on the optimistic side, if 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 I look at Davos this year, which is just one of the benchmarks, top five indicators in the global risk. Uh, clearly signals in the trust barometer. Stakeholder capitalism, new manifesto. The conversation is now anywhere, everywhere. And, and I think that's, that's the way to change things. It's never going to be you or me making a speech. It's once the mass starts talking about these things that things change. Are we able to change fast enough? That's probably where I'm a little more pessimistic. Than, uh, than I should be,
0: but uh, we'll see. We'll keep pushing. I know you'll keep pushing. Peter Bakkers, the CEO of WPCSD. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. As I said, the circular economy has been a big topic here this week in Davos, and I'm joined now by Mark DeWitt, the Director of Strategic Alliances at Circle Economy, based out of Amsterdam. Hey, Mark. Hi, Joe. So you just released a report here, uh, uh, pretty interesting. Did t- talk about what the report is and, and, and how it's changed from the last time.
6: Right. So two years ago at Davos, we presented for the first time our circularity gap report. And really the reason why we wanted to do that is that in the circular economy, we have a lot of talk of the direction where we should be heading, But what we felt was really lacking was a clear analysis of where we currently stand. So a zero measurement for the globe. Um, And what we did is we looked at how um, resources um, currently being extracted, processed, are really put to work to satisfy key societal needs. Um, And what we found is that actually after use, only 9% of all the materials we use, and currently for the first time ever, we're using more than 100 billion tons of materials every year as mankind and only 9% of those materials actually make it back into our economic system meaning that more than 90% is wasted
0: so that sounds potentially like progress i mean i but it depends where were we 2 years ago
6: yeah so 2 years ago we found that it was 9.1% that was reused and currently only 8.6% uh, is being reused. So we really see that we're really going in reverse.
0: Well, why, why is that? I mean, with all the action and all, all the companies and governments that are stepping up in the circular economy, you'd think that wouldn't be the case. Why is that?
6: Right. So what we, what we saw is that really the extraction of materials um, has increased to such an extent. So that is really the, the mining of uh, minerals to, to erect buildings, um, fossil fuels, etc has really increased to such an extent that it outpaces uh, the extent to which we're able to process end-of-use waste and get it back into our system. So we're digging up things faster than that we're reusing stuff.
0: I imagine that most of the data, they're all lagging indicators, but some of this I know in the states, the uh, municipal solid waste data is is a few years old. What, what do you think? Uh, is is going to be the picture. Are you, you going to start to see some progress or is the economy growing at such a speed right now that we're just going to keep using more stuff and the numbers are going to, again, either be, be, be flat or maybe go back the wrong way?
6: Right. Well, I, I think if you now just um, kind of Just look at the numbers, it it looks quite bleak. And you see that the structures in there are really hardwired. Kind of the linear economy is really embedded very deeply in in how we operate. At the same time, also here in Davos, but also what we've done is looked at really bottom-up initiatives across the globe. And you see so many efforts going in the right direction. So I'm positive in that sense. Whereas in a year from now, we'll have a positive message to share. I'm not confident. Uh, and, and as you also pointed out, we definitely need better data um, because we have the best data available from the World Bank, from the World Resources Institute, et cetera, but we're still lacking really solid data to really measure. So yeah, that's really a point of attention that we want to work on also in the, in the year going forward.
0: So you and, and Harold Friedel, the head of uh, Circle Economy, uh, have been working and others, have, your team have been working on this for quite a, quite a while. Are you discouraged by those numbers? Well, I think what
6: the good thing is that we finally have some of the numbers. So that's the good thing, that we can now start measure progress. Um, absolutely, it's it's disappointing, even if you see the recent outcomes of the COP in, in Madrid happening, that so much positive and good energy is going into those meetings. And at the same time, that the pace at which um, uh, really population is growing um, and, and we're uh, wealth is growing, etc. It's just hard to even kind of bend those trends. So I'm positive in the sense that we see so much attention going to it even in the the risk report that the World Economic Forum put out you see that top 5 indicators are around climate etc. So we see that sense of urgency, we see positive momentum, but at the moment still we're not able to really, yeah, course correct.
0: So finally as, as you think about Davos and what's been going on here this week is what do you what do you think is going to come out of it as it relates to the circular economy?
6: Right, well, I've, I've seen the topic being picked up to um, an ever larger extent, in, particularly in the last two years. So I see that, that businesses are really starting to adopt, and not only um, in the Western world, not only in China, uh, but really across the globe you see initiatives from Chile to Colombia uh, to India, so really everywhere. So that's really um, encouraging, and my hope would be that at least... Yeah, people get um, an extra sense and really connect to the right people to be inspired and see how you not only can set kind of clear goals to the future, but also become very practical um, in implementing it in everyday reality uh, tomorrow.
0: Well, thanks for doing that incredible research. It's really fascinating. And uh, yeah, fingers crossed. Mark DeWitt is Director of Strategic Alliances at Circle Economy. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you, Joe. As I said earlier, part of the conversation here this week in Davos is about biodiversity, that business for nature, and risk. Uh, And Here with me now is Mark Goff, the Executive Director of the Natural Capitals Coalition. Hey, Mark. Hey, how are you, Joel? Doing great. Um, Talk a little bit about what you're talking about uh, in Davos this week and and how this fits into this conversation about risk and resilience and natural capital. So there's a lot going on here in Davos this week.
1: One of the key things we're doing is we're launching the policy asks. So we, along with many other organizations, have come together through Business for Nature. And Business for Nature is trying to bring one voice from business into the policy arena. So rather than having 22 different approaches, can we have one? And for that, today we've actually just launched the five policy asks. At the center of those five policy asks, the lotus flower of policy asks here, is valuation. And actually, whatever you're going to be doing here, you need to understand your relationship with If you don't understand that, if you haven't done a capital's approach, you won't be able to address the circular economy. You won't be able to address all of these other things that are
0: coming out here this week in Davos. So is the conversation really understood to be about risk or opportunity? Where does this fit into that sort of spectrum or continuum?
1: It has to be both. Obviously, risk is going to be a big element, and we've started with that. There's a World Economic Forum report that's just come out today about the risks around nature, and that very much focuses on the impacts and dependencies that we have, the dependency we have on nature as well. But the flip side of that is the opportunity, and we're finding more and more with the companies and with the governments and others that we're talking to around using this concept of capitals, that what they're doing is, is they're finding more opportunity to do things, new things. And that's exciting. That's where Investment comes in and we're moving away now from the cost of nature to actually the investment the returns we can get from it if we invest in nature we get returns from that whether it's in benefits through better water quality and quality of product that becomes really important as well the biodiversity is about the quality of those products that come back but
0: also we get returns in jobs we get returns in other areas well. how good are we getting at measuring those returns and understanding the valuations and and particularly the ROI of, of nature in effect
1: That's a really good question, it's very difficult. Uh, We don't have a a single green book you can go to and say that one tree is worth this, because value is always relative. It's the relative importance and worth. So it's got to be about engaging with local communities, understanding value chains, understanding supply chains, to really understand what that value means to you. When you understand that value, you act. If you have numbers, measurements, that's great. You can say a 1,000 of this, 10,000 of that, that doesn't lead to change. What leads to change is when we understand the value of it, the context, That's what leads to the change in these organizations, the purpose-driven organizations we're starting to see.
0: So who's gonna be developing those metrics or frameworks or standards? Uh, is that but what the Natural Capital Coalition is doing? Or is this the business for nature? Where does that come from?
1: So the standards around valuation, yes, the Natural Capital Coalition has brought together the 40 different approaches that were there. We now have an internationally accepted framework which is being applied, the Natural Capital Protocol. We've also been doing the same in other areas. And what we're now looking at is can we take the Value Balancing Alliance is another initiative which we've just brought up for the next couple of years to really look at getting those, those measurement bits the numbers you have to times by to get to it. Can we start
0: becoming more consistent in that approach as well? So where will we start to see those kinds of valuations showing up? Will they be in sustainability reports? Will they be in 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 bank uh, loan applications or, or other? Uh, where, where will we see those?
1: We're seeing it across all decision-making. So yes, we'll see it in those figures that are disclosed, environmental profits and loss accounts and things like that. We're seeing those starting to appear now much more regularly. But more importantly, I think it's in the decision-making, in the day-to-day operations on the ground. When you've got a local manager that's looking at making a decision that day, is he really taking- taking account of nature in that process. And that's where we're seeing the excitement.
0: Good, well, they're literally taking down this place around us, so we're gonna leave 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 it it there. there. Thank you so much, Mark Goff is the executive director of the Natural Capitals Coalition. Thank you, Joe. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization, stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish a different one Monday through Friday. Shauna's is called Verge Weekly and mine's on Green Buzz on Mondays, Verge Weekly on Wednesdays. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. And as always, we love to hear from you. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather will be back next week with me and another edition of Green Biz 350. Thanks to Shauna Rappaport for stepping in this week. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. As always, thanks so much for tuning in.